This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Today, we're chatting with Dr. Emily O'Leary. Emily is an experienced clinical psychologist who has a special interest in treating OCD. She's also the managing director of not one, but three clinics in Queensland, and she has a consultancy business that provides training and supervision to other psychologists in her area of interest. In this episode, you'll hear Emily share her knowledge of OCD and generalized anxiety disorder. We'll talk all about how to tease them apart and how to plan treatment. And you'll hear Emily's passion for advocacy when she talks about the importance of education and skill development when working with clients with OCD. Let's get started. Okay, thank you so much, Emily, for joining us today on the show. We are very much looking forward to chatting with you today about all things generalized anxiety disorder and OCD. Oh, you're most welcome. I'm very happy to be here talking with you both. I guess we'll start off with just learning a little bit about yourself and if you could tell us a little bit about your story and what got you interested in working with OCD. Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist and I also did a PhD in OCD. I did all of my training in Christchurch, New Zealand. And I suppose like many people, many therapists, I came to OCD through working with a number of clients. We all go on our merry way when we're training and down rabbit holes as to what we want to work on and work in. And initially, I had a real interest in psychosis. I really liked working with or trying to understand people with delusional disorder. I also knew there were limitations in terms of what you can do from a psychological perspective. Then I started working with as a client with comorbid OCD and psychosis that was in psychosis well treated and really enjoyed it and then just kept deep diving into it. So that was sort of from an academic point of view, I became really interested. But also, I just really loved these clients. They were highly motivated. Most of them were high functioning. And it was just this discrepancy between these super high functioning people who presented so well and just had the most illogical thoughts. And it was like, you know, they would say, but, but I know that this is crazy, Emily, and rah, rah, rah. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's pretty out there. And it was just that juxtaposition. And I was like, wow, this is a massive jigsaw puzzle. And I think that therapeutic relationship that you could form with them because they were so motivated, it was pretty addictive for me. So I just kind of dived all in. So that, that was in short my story. It wasn't like I set off and thought, okay, I'm going to be an OCD therapist. I actually wanted to be a forensic psych initially, I think from watching silence of the lambs and sort out who did it basically but after about six months in forensic psych I was like oh not so much my jam so that's very roundabout way of saying how I got into it. Tori and I have got massive smiles on our faces and are nodding a lot because we can both really connect to what you've just said in terms of that massive discrepancy between knowing that it doesn't make logical sense and having a really high functioning adult and going what the hell what's happening here Yeah, I'm so trapped by these behaviours, even though I know it doesn't make any sense. And the degree of distress 
that they exhibit despite being cognitively intact and having insight, the degree of distress in some cases starts to sway that. And it's trying to work out a way to keep them with you while you struggle with that stuckness in a way. Because saying like, well, yes, we know it's not real. I mean, logically, the smart brain knows that. Well, is that easy? We wouldn't have clinics, right? It's always working out who's sitting in front of you and how do you get the content and the message you need to get across to a way that they're going to understand because every client is different. You know, how you teach diffusion or how you teach grounding or how you do and present a formulation is different depending on who's sitting there. That's always been something that's been really interesting to me. It's a lovely segue into thinking about the multifaceted nature of our clients' experiences and the way that it's very rarely just pure OCD and that there's often comorbid difficulties. We know, Emily, that you're quite expert in working with not just OCD, but also anxiety disorders. Can you tell us a little bit about anxiety disorders and in particular, your work with generalized anxiety disorder? With comorbid anxiety disorders, it can be tricky. There's a number of themes or concepts that occur in both GAD and OCD. And in some ways, the descriptions are both quite vague. It's that people can obsess over things or worry about things. And as therapists, we often use terms interchangeably, whether it be fear, worry, rumination, all of these things. We use them with clients and can be quite confusing. So with OCD, we see a lot of GAD, social anxiety, a whole range of things. When we treat GAD, we probably see more depression than comorbid OCD. So it's like with GAD clients, they're probably less likely to have OCD. They're more likely to have depression. But with our OCD clients, they do have a lot of GAD and depression. Fundamentally, the difference between GAD and OCD relates a lot to the content and the expression of the disorder. GAD tends to be, as we know, really around everyday type concerns, the plausible things that could happen. So you could lose your job. You may forget your child. Like you, must, you won't forget your job, but you may forget to pick him or <laughs> her up from school. Whereas with OCD, they tend to be less plausible, sort of left field, and they do tend to have more of a fixed, singular focus. So it's more around harm OCD or contamination-based OCD, or, whereas GAD is more that sort of general pervasive pathological worry about everyday type things. So content, I think, is really important around that and also how that's expressed behaviourally. So behaviourally, a distinguishing feature, again, with OCD is looking at the presence of compulsions, whether that's mental or overt, and rituals, whereas behaviourally, the main thing with GAD is that expression of worry and avoidance. There doesn't tend to be a lot of compulsions or, or rituals within that, other than, of course, that rumination. But it gets really tricky, doesn't it? Because, you know, sometimes you'll have a referral and it'll be, you know, sometimes you'll get absolutely nothing. Like, please see Susie for treatment. I'm like, thank you. That's nice. I'm going to see Susie. <laughs> and other times you go, please see Susie. And there's a cocktail of diagnoses. So there might be OCPD and OCD and GAD and stuff. And it's like teasing apart. Like if you've got GAD and OCPD and OCD, the things running through my head is, okay, content, present absence of compulsions, perfectionism sometimes is there hoarding in there and constantly almost doing a decision tree of if then this is this to pull apart to confirm diagnosis and then I suppose from there it's looking at how you plan for treatment and what you do. I think what I'm really hearing so strongly through what you're saying is the importance of assessment 
100%. In this space, we talk a lot about treatment, about what to do. But what I'm really hearing you say is slow down, unpack, take apart, think it through, perhaps before embarking on treatment. 100%. I'm an absolute shocker. Hate being rushed, and particularly with our clients with OCD. I mean, when was the last time you guys had a client just with OCD? Like never. I'm not sure I ever have. Exactly. There's always stuff. So lots of comorbidities. I mean, I work predominantly in the private space. And because of that, I think as psychs, we feel an urgency sometimes to hurry that process and provide value. And then the value is seen in treatment and this client symptoms reducing. And then that places an expectation on us to like just hurry this process. And I really push back on that and will say to the people that I train, hey, if you take a two-session appointment to assessment, you go for gold. Don't hurry that process because then I call it sort of like drinking the Kool-Aid. It's probably not a great term, but the clients have to drink the Kool-Aid before they jump into behavioral work. So they have to get on board with, is the diagnosis correct? Is there a shared formulation? Do you understand the cognitive mechanisms under OCD or different anxiety disorder? Have you got some techniques to manage set distress? Do you have the mindset? And that can take. I know a lot of OCD therapists go straight to ERP and I delay ERP. I do. I take longer. And that's a long time. If you compare to other OCD therapists, they will introduce ERP in sometimes session two and three. Too soon. In a lot of my work, I actually consider the preparation phase, almost part of ERP. Like you kind of can't embark on any of the behavioral work until you actually have done almost like what I would call phase one or module one, which isn't an official term, but it's that space for, you're right, getting ready to do the work. I can really relate to what you're saying, Emily. It's really all about mindset, which links into what you were saying before, Emily, about making sure that the person is taking the client with you along this journey, because we're going to be asking them to do some things that are probably extremely, well, probably very frightful and making sure that our client has full understanding and awareness to help their mindset along towards that acceptance of knowing what we're going to be asking them to do in a collaborative fashion and really setting up that foundation through assessment and psychoeducation and those discussions I think is incredibly important. We also take our time with ERP in our clinic too. I think it's incredibly important. I love hearing that. That's really great. It's one of the first things I do when I work with registrars is sort of say to them, look, can you just pretend you're not in this private practice model? Just practice as you would if you're in the university clinic. Focus on how you would relate to the person. Take everything else away and just think about the therapy itself. And I think that's when you get some of that nice natural therapy coming through. That's a really beautiful way of putting it. I really love that. Where do you think that anxiety and that pressure to go fast comes from? It's really internal and external really, isn't it? I mean, it's arguable whether there is a personality type that is attracted to clinical psychology, and I'm sure that's probably another topic for your podcast. (laughs) We'll have you back on. (laughs) Exactly. Anecdotally, psychologists are results-driven. They very much want to help. So I think we all put that pressure on ourselves. Also within the Medicare framework, let's be honest, I think in some ways that 10 session, when it used to be 10 session, there was a lot of kind of, okay, you need to get in, you need to get results. These clients have only got X months. And also clients themselves. And I don't think it comes from a manipulative place, but we know that within the first or second session that they're like, I really want to do this. I really want to get well, particularly with OCD. I'm sure you've had this. They will say things like, 
oh, you know, I've been on this wait list for a long time and my psychiatrist said that this is a really good clinic to come to and it's almost you're my last chance and this is the last time I'm going to do therapy. So the implicit message for me is don't stuff up and do it right. So I think it's all of those factors. Plus, I know we were talking a little bit offline around clients with OCD sometimes having not the best experiences in therapy because they might have not got the right treatment. So for me, there's also a sense of I've got to make this a corrective experience for my client. So it's a multitude of factors, which I suppose is where good supervision comes in and I get called out on my martyrdom complex or all of that kind of stuff and told to pull my head in. I agree in terms of, especially with early career psychologists, where there's this sense of urgency and we have this Medicare model. And for our international listeners, Medicare is our healthcare system where our clients will come and see us as private practitioners and we'll get a bit of a rebate from the government. And there are only 10 rebates available in a calendar year, but it's almost like it puts this expectation that we could only have 10 sessions in a year. And when you're working with something as complex as OCD, that's not even going to touch the sides, let alone get into the meat of it all. So through universities and all this sort of stuff, we do get pulled into this sense of urgency and a sense of urgency from our own expectations, our previous experience in teaching through university. And Emily, as you described, the client's sense of urgency too, because they have been on that wait list for a long time, or they come to you because you've got a reputation for working with it. And it is, it's like, you're going to be the magical miracle worker that's going to fix me. It is hard to just put the brakes on and slow everything down and contain that sense of urgency to make sure that we get those foundations right to succeed in ERP because otherwise it can be a very slippery slope. Once we've set up that assessment and those foundations in terms of psychoeducation and all that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. what would we look at when we're looking at the treatment of GAT with OCD? I mean, there's a number of ways you can go in terms of evidence-based. There's ACT, there's metacognitive therapy and there's CBT. Depending on the client, I'll do one of three. As CBT, I kind of think of outside of all the goodies we talk about formulation assessment and we're thinking about techniques. That's probably where I differ in how I treat GAD and OCD. With GAD, I will do cognitive restructuring. I will do all of those stock standard traditional CBT techniques. And whilst I think it's useful for some clients with OCD, I tend not to do cognitive restructuring with clients with OCD. I may, particularly with the dual diagnosis, I may highlight things like cognitive distortions and those types of things, but I will very rarely go evidence for and against, et cetera, et cetera, because it's, why would you argue with something that's inherently nonsensical to begin with? Yes. Thank you so much for saying that. And I'm screaming into the microphone because (laughs) I feel I'm exactly the same. And I know Tori does this too. Your clients are telling you this doesn't make sense. So why would you try and sit there and do cognitive restructuring with your clients with OCD? Yeah. But let's say a client with POCD, and I'm using the label, I know there's issues around labels, but let's say POCD identifies that. Why would I say to them, like, list all the reasons for and against why you're a pedophile? When they're not a pedophile, they're afraid of being a pedophile. They don't fit the profile. Like, they will say, yes, I've thought about this. I've thought about this for five years. So it makes no sense whatsoever. So I don't tend to do things like probabilities, likelihoods, all that kind of stuff. Doesn't mean I don't use them with other anxiety disorders. I don't use them with OCD. The techniques I use with OCD are grounding, diffusion, mindfulness, And then I'll jump into the big guns of behavioral experiments and exposure response prevention. That's my OCD treatment. 
And with GAD, depending, it'll be very much CBT protocols. You will be bringing in exposure response prevention, but it'll be, as I said, that cluster of CBT techniques or going into metacog. And metacognitive therapy, there's a lot of therapists at our clinics that are a lot more well-versed across that. It sort of came out after my time in New Zealand. So then the people that I have in my clinics have kind of taught me and across that. But I really like the concepts of that sort of meta-worry and the worry about worry. I think that's really nice. But again, it depends on the client and whether their worry is the presenting issue or their obsessions are the presenting issue. Kind of doing that downward arrow to see, okay, well, what is this core kind of cognition and core belief and what is this fundamental fear? And then how do I go about getting them to test that out and do it? I think that's a really helpful way of helping clinicians who perhaps might not have a lot of experience with ERP or treating OCD to think about how they might differentiate their treatment, how they might plan treatment for someone who does have OCD or just has GAD and how they might think all of that through. I think that that's a really helpful framework. I don't like hard and fast rules by and large. You will often hear people say, oh, EIP always has to be part of the treatment. And yeah, sure, look, it's gold standard. It's been around forever, you know, particularly with more modern things of Michelle Kresk's work. But I equally have clients that just love doing behavioral experiments to death and then get really good results. And then we'll just jump into relapse prevention. So I think as long as it's evidence-based, it's whatever works. If ERP is not working, change it up. It sounds like you're quite creative in the way that you work. Creative is centric. Annoying, I'm not quite sure. (laughs) In some ways, I like it that clients never really know what exactly is going to come out of my mouth. And I suppose I use that a little bit, same as humor. And for me, the therapeutic relationship is fundamental. So, you know, I can be a bit naughty sometimes with exposure and stuff like that. We have a giggle about stuff, which is probably a safety behavior, but I suppose so. And that's why I think I'm probably attracted to OCD because... You can do that stuff. It just seems to fit with my personality. Yeah, I think that's really lovely. And I think there is room for humor because I hear what you're saying where you were like, oh, maybe it's a safety behavior. But I think when used respectfully and we are having a bit of a giggle about it, it's not like our client isn't looking for other sorts of maybe little forms of reassurance. But at the same time, I think when you're not outwardly going, use humor when you have an intrusive thought. I think that's definitely something that I would probably not veer towards, which I'm sure you won't either. But sitting and having a human conversation with your client and exploring these thoughts and being able to have a bit of a giggle about it, I think is such a really wonderful way of just normalizing the human experience of having really random, weird, intrusive thoughts pop into our head. Which leads into my next question of when we work with OCD, we often tell our clients that intrusive thoughts are really, really normal. And I always share some of my weird and wacky ones. Are you willing to share some of yours? I am. It's pretty wacky though. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know what was going on with me this day. It was probably a good 15 years ago, but I was quite tired and I was packing to go overseas and I was fluffing around, getting everything done, blah, 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 blah. At that time, I had a beautiful Persian cat, just the apple of my eye. It's pre-children, all that. Got in the taxi, bags through customs, rah, rah, rah. And then I was sitting on the plane and this intrusive thought popped in. It was like, oh, my God, the cat's in the suitcase. I didn't see the cat. Like, true story. And I literally, the adrenal reaction, it was this huge surge. And all I had was the visual images of the cat pushing up against the suitcase. 
And I really had to do some good fashion like, okay, just stop. And I had to say, yes, it's a lot about, you know, this OCD stuff, rah, rah, rah. So I think for that one, I always like to say that one because it's always one that really did come from left field, no priming whatsoever about the cat in the suitcase. And then there's other ones that you just have, the ones are always around, you know, when you're waiting for the train, like, oh, what if I jump in or over the bridge, you know, oh, what if you veer off or what if this happens or what if I was just a spork in my eye? So there's all that silly stuff that you're just triggered about. But the cat one always sticks with me and I always use it in therapy. But what about you guys? Oh my God, so many, so many. Like I have a cat also and her and my husband love to fight together all the time. They have a very strong love-hate relationship. Like he'll be cutting vegetables and she'll be annoying him and he'll grab the knife and like pretend to stab her. And then I'll have these intrusive images of like him slicing her head open and blood squirting around everywhere and like her brains on the kitchen bench. Oh, and no. so- <laughs> <laughs> yes, so Tarantino. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> it really is. Then I'm just sitting there and going, this is wonderful. You're cutting vegetables and I'm sitting here thinking about our cat's brains all over our kitchen bench. Mine are definitely, since having children, becoming a parent have definitely been about I think both the pedophilic intrusive thoughts, they've been so strong since becoming a parent, but also ones about safety, as you were saying before, about just the fragility of their life and how I could just crush their skull with my hand or at any moment, or I could drive them off the road and wrap us around a tree. They've been so bold since becoming a parent. It's the stuff we value, right? The stuff that is important to us, which we can see how that can get stuck and take hold and take complete control of our minds. Absolutely. And that's what we often say to our clients, isn't it? Whatever you value, that's where OCD will go and that's what it will target. But, you know, it does make me giggle sometimes because you know, most of the time the things people value are family or health. And then you just get one from left field that has like beautiful family, all of these, but the worst thing they can think about is like damage to their bike. And that's nutrition. It's like, so I can't go, well, you know, it's about what's most important to you. It's like, oh. So again, it is interesting where it sometimes goes, but yeah, most of the time it is kids, family, health, yeah, death and dying. Emily, what advice would you give to practitioners who have not yet worked with clients with OCD or are new in the field or are trying to build their confidence? What would you say to them? about the idea of treating OCD and comorbid anxiety disorders? I think I would probably say, firstly, do you want to work with OCD? And then I would say, don't work with OCD until you know how to treat OCD. And then I would say, it's okay for that first case if you don't know, but do it under supervision. And I think that's really important, whether it's eating disorders or OCD or schizoaffective disorders or personality disorders. We have to be really careful about being a jack of all trades, master of none. And I do believe that with obsessive compulsive and related disorders and anxiety disorders, if you don't enjoy doing it and you're not really passionate about it, don't do it. Life's too short to do something that you're not into. I mean, all clients invest their trust and time and energy with their therapist, but OCD, maybe I'm biased, but I think they do it a lot more because of the nature and the content of the thoughts. I mean, the content of OCD thoughts are basically taboo. They're taboo themes. And if you have a client saying, I'm having thoughts of stabbing my baby or all of these things, 
I've heard stories of people being assessed for risk and child safety notified. I've had clients with sexuality-based OCD gone in for sex therapy around coming out. I've had all these horror stories that have done so much damage to the client, but also to that therapist because they feel bad that they didn't actually know, want to be better with, know what they were doing. So I would say, yes, OCD is great, but make sure that you're doing it under supervision if you don't know. And if you don't really want to do it, don't do it. Don't go near it. Don't waste the sessions. Don't just say, oh, maybe I will be interested. If you're interested, then do some training and hear about what it's like and then do it. You can just make it a lot harder for the client and also for subsequent therapists. Absolutely. It's really about trying to figure that out in terms of, is that what you want to be doing? Because clients often have to unlearn a lot when they do then go and work with someone who has a little bit more understanding or is getting that guidance that you were talking about if it is their first client. I also like that advice, Emily, give yourself permission to step away. As a psychologist, you don't have to be able to work with everything. It is okay to work within fields that you're interested in, that you're passionate about. You don't have to say yes. It's okay to say this is not for me. Give yourself permission to do that. And I think that's maybe why we're seeing sort of more clinics like Selen and ours is because for me, it was purely selfish reasons. I wanted to work in what I wanted to work in. There are areas I don't go near because I don't really enjoy them. And that doesn't make me a bad therapist. It's just not something that floats my boat. Unless it's a comorbidity and then I have to kind of warm it up and go, right, come on, big sucks on, you've got to deal with the comorbidity. But then I will seek out supervision of the people that know stuff that I don't. That's right. That's when you access support, you do extra learning, you access a workshop, you buy the books, you do the work. Learning for the rest of our careers, right? Mm-hmm. forever learning forever learning and that was one I think our interest in starting this podcast was a little bit selfish too Emily because we were like yes we get to keep learning <laughs> having great discussions with people in the field is a learning for us too because we are we're forever learning it doesn't matter how long you've been working with it for there's always something new one of my supervisees asked me the other day aren't you bored of doing the same thing like working with the same disorder for the last 11 years and I'm like no nah. <laughs> because Every single person is so different. You might have five people with contamination type OCD. Each person will be completely different from the other. And even though we've got sort of, we're not allowed to call them specialist clinics, so special interest clinics. I mean, you see everything within that. It's just that the primary issue is anxiety-based or OCD-based. And you're still treating all of the avoidance behaviors that come with that. So yeah, look, I agree. And I think there was a period, maybe eight or nine years out I was like man I'm nailing this therapy thing like I'm all over it I'm not a junior now I'm properly qualified and all good and the hook and then as I get older and more into it I'm like oh you know you see the young people coming I think I actually have more doubt or more kind of like well I don't know as much in going into that and I know stages of competencies and stuff like that in supervision but I think just as a therapist for me the older I get sometimes the more I realize what I don't know. So there's that kind of like, what do they call it? Conscious incompetence. Consciously incompetent, yes. Thank you. I think there yes. was something around seven, eight years. And now I'm consciously competent. No, I'm kind of <laughs> 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 But I think I'm more honest with it as well. I don't know if you guys find that. The older you get, mm-hmm. the more you're just like, well, no, this is what I think. This is how I feel. These are the things I struggle with as a therapist. And I think more confident to say so. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And that's about being vulnerable, isn't it, at the end of the day? And Tori and I really make an effort, especially around early career psychologists, to be more vulnerable and to say these things out loud so that they can then feel comfortable to ask the questions and to not feel like what they're about to say is silly or dumb or stupid or whatever other judgment they might be making about it in their own mind so that we can really create that learning environment. And not just in our clinics, but generally even in the space, whether it's in a Facebook group or some other area or on a podcast or something like that, I think being curious about what we're learning about is incredibly important. And even us as more senior clinicians to be able to voice that out loud and acknowledge those things is incredibly important too, I think, to help manage some of this anxiety around how do I treat or how do I work with what I'm seeing in front of me? The landscape has changed really, hasn't it, for the early career science in that back in the day, and New Zealand was kind of different to Australia, obviously, because we're naturally superior, but there was a pathway for us and it was never private practice, right? So private practice was something that you did when you were a thousand years old and had reached your competency. You know, then you could go into private practice in New Zealand. So for us, we went straight into government and then we would go through different areas and NDTs and learn and stuff and then into private practice. And what I notice here, and particularly over the last five, six years, that's really reversed. Like there's a lot of early career sites going straight into private practice. And particularly with COVID and telehealth, it's really jumped up more. And I'm sure that there are lots of benefits around that, I'm sure. But I do wonder about the impact of perhaps the learning on, on some of the early career sites when that happens quite soon, because there are a lot of really valuable things that you can learn. And even if you wanted to do private practice, doing that dual role of private and government, I think for a couple of years when you come out is actually really nice. And I wonder whether... That is why sometimes we see people slipping into areas perhaps that they don't have the kind of skill for because they're in general practice. And as a general practitioner, you know, in private practice, that's what you see. But yeah, look, it's just something I've just been pondering and noticing. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. And when we take on, we try and keep a balance in our clinic in terms of senior practitioners and early career psychologists, because Tori and I love teaching and we really value supporting our early career sites as much as as I'm sure you would do the same in your clinics as well. But we also are very much encouraging of go out there and try different things and then hone your skill set in on whatever it is that's tweaking your interest. But some feedback that one of my registrars gave the other day was like she also really appreciated being in a clinic that was quite nuanced because it allowed her to not just learn about treating OCD, but also just build her bread and butter skills as a therapist knowing that, okay, treatment-wise, I know roughly what I need to do, but how can I keep building rapport? How can I practice my listening skills? How can I practice my providing empathy and really hearing the client and my assessment skills and all of those other things that we talked about earlier in providing that foundation that you don't really get a chance to do when you're trying to be the jack of all trades? Exactly. And I think we have really similar models in that we have our senior clinicians down to our sort of what we call intermediate and then mm-hmm. early career and then registrars and then working with the unis and the, and the students coming through. But we know how much work it is just shaping that one student in terms of them really feeling confident to sit in that seat and be in private practice. So I agree. I think it's really good. And there are some people that just tend to lend themselves to private practice as well. 
it's nice to have that mix. I suppose, again, it comes with maybe just slowing down the process like we were talking about in assessment. I think sometimes just slowing down that process from registrars coming out of university and then thinking about that pathway in terms of what's going to be best for their learning, which may be a mixed model or may not. That's good advice. What is, Emily, something that you know now that you wish you knew earlier in your career? There's quite a few. I think the biggest thing for me, I just wish that I'd slowed it down a little bit. Instead of focusing so much on treatment manuals and plans and everything that I had to do, and I'm so task-focused on providing handouts and photocopied sheets and stuff because I wanted to do a good job because I felt inferior (laughs) because I was just from uni and then I kind of missed the big picture like I'd be focused on getting through my dot points that I might miss that something in their face had changed and their affect had changed and it's something I have to watch as well I'm far more process focused and I take my time a lot more and things take my interest a lot more than they wouldn't it because I'm focused very much on that person so I wish I'd just did less handouts and just watch their face more just relaxed a little bit of myself Yeah, Celine and I can relate entirely, particularly to the idea of copious amounts of handouts and copious amounts of preparation before session, anticipating how the session is going to play out before your client is even in the space with you. And I think that idea around slow it down, give yourself permission to slow down, be in the room with your client, be with them rather than talk at them. Absolutely. And I think the other thing, when I was younger, I used to act like I think a therapist should have acted rather than bringing in my authenticity or part of my personality. I acted quite conservative and what I would say vanilla and what I thought a professional clinical psychologist should be. Now, that's not to say I'm unprofessional now. I'm not, right? I'm still across everything, but I have my quirks and I have the things that make me me and honest and relatable, which I think helps in that room. But that took a while because I think as therapists, we have this fear of being judged in a particular way. We have our vulnerabilities around, are we going to be seen as professional and and knowledgeable and all of these things? So I like now that I'm me in the room as opposed to what I think a clinical psychologist 101 should be. I love that. I think that idea of almost having a bit of armor on in our earlier careers where we're like, We need to be a blank slate. We're a little bit anxious about the experience. We're kind of presenting in a certain way. And then we really let go of that and therapy changes and you get so much more out of it for the client and for you when you just be your own authentic self. Like you said, it's still a respectful and professional manner, but just being human because at the end of the day, it's all about that human connection. And like you said, be with your client. And I think Tori mentioned that earlier as well be present with your client. Don't forget that it's actually about them, that we need to keep them in the room with us as well. This has been such a riveting discussion. I really enjoyed it. It's been great. It's been a bit of a giggle. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Having fun along the way. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely amazing. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me to be on. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. 
all one word. That's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. rules. <laughs>